Center trying to explain uh, why we do what we do. This helps reinforce for us uh, what we're about, but also helps us to explain to family, friends, and uh, Christians of other uh, stripes uh, why we do exactly what we're doing. Uh, we began with the uh, issue of our name and the symbols of our logo. Then I talked about us being a relational community and what that meant. We talked a little bit about being a private congregation. Uh, we're going to yet talk about the public ministry aspects of that. Um, and then I explained why we are liturgical, drawing from both Judaism and Christianity in our structure. And last week I approached the idea of the multi-denominational aspect uh, as we express that Judeo-Christian uh, faith. Today I want to talk about the relationship between discipleship and evangelism. After all, we're called the Disciple Center. Often we're attacked or accused of not being evangelistic. Um, and I think uh, there are two reasons for that. I'll talk about at least one of them today. Uh, this is a, a large subject and we may have to cover it in, in more than one message. Um, so the issue that I want to zero in on in our statement is where we talk about functioning as a private congregation for the purpose of protecting the integrity of the members and to maintain focus on discipleship. It's that phrase, focus on discipleship, that I want to talk about. If we focus on discipleship, assuming we know what that means, uh, what about the place of evangelism? So, this aspect of our ministry can be easily misunderstood, and often is. Uh, particularly if it's not addressed correctly, it can give the impression that we are against evangelism. Um, and so this is critical enough that I will talk more about it beyond today, but I, I today want to really talk about the relationship between discipleship and evangelism, uh, or at least the, the current sense of what evangelism is. In order to uh, begin with this, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, and take a look at that uh, passage uh, from the words of Jesus himself to his apostles, uh, which is really what uh, drives in many people's minds uh, the push of evangelism when actually it's a commission to disciple. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to a mountain which Jesus designated. Notice this is not on the Mount of Olives. This is in the Galilee. Uh, we have a pop notion of when and how this happened because of movies and because of sermons. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The text actually then says, as you go. It doesn't say in a directive to go. Uh, it says, as you go, or wherever you are. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, the command is to make disciples that begins by baptizing them and continues by teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. All the teachings of the Master in that sense. So, 
I want to begin with a simple definition of discipleship. Talk about discipleship first, then I'll talk about its relationship to evangelism. Uh, Discipleship is a way of life that is comprehensive and encompasses the teachings of a master teacher that has been committed to his primary disciples who then pass it on to other worthy disciples. And these disciples continue the teachings of the master to the generations beyond themselves. In other words, discipleship is not a 10-week class with a certificate at the end. It's learning an entire way of life taught by a master who then has taught his disciples who learn fully that system and then pass it on to the next batch of disciples. And so the teachings of that master continue in generations both in terms of children and in depth in terms of others who join into that discipleship system. Now, there are three kinds of discipleship systems that you might be familiar with. One of those is the uh, ancient Greek philosophical schools that were based on the idea of a love of wisdom. And so we have Plato and his disciples, and uh, we have Socrates, supposedly, and his disciples, question about whether he really existed or Plato made him up, Uh, and then Aristotle and his school. And so what would happen is these philosophers in the Western world uh, developed an entire way of thinking, entire way of behaving, an entire way of embracing life, and they taught that to their disciples who then adapted and taught that to their disciples. In the Far East, there were martial arts systems that developed under master teachers, and they were means of survival. They involved some religious aspects and behavioral aspects, and particularly self-defense aspects. And the martial arts in their ancient manner was a discipleship system taught from a master teacher down through his children and his other disciples who then would teach that on uh, not, uh, not changing what the master had taught, but uh, uh, reinforcing it and teaching it to the next level. The third group that we're very familiar with was found in, within Judaism. The master teacher or rabbi who would teach his disciples about the way of Moses, the way of life given by God, the Torah, and they would actually... I got this upside down. I can't believe I did that. I knew there was something not right about it. No wonder I couldn't read it. (laughs) So, I kept looking down going, it looks funny. Uh, The... the, uh, Rabbis would gather together 10 or 12 key disciples, primary disciples, and then they would have other disciples in addition to that. 10 or 12 because in Judaism, 10 was a uh, group of responsibility, what they call a minion, and 12 would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were a little mini version of Israel. And of course, you know that Jesus did that, and Paul did that as well, where they had their primary disciples that they taught everything about the system of their master. Uh, In the case of the rabbis, Moses. In the case of the apostles, Jesus. Uh, 
who was a uh, master teacher in the fullest sense of the word, in that a son is greater than a servant in his house. So, uh, our discipling system and what Jesus was telling his disciples to do was this tradition of the master teacher who had learned the system, uh, teaching it to his primary disciples as well as others who would hear so that they would be able to pass that on as was read earlier uh, about Paul saying, take those things that you have seen and heard it be. (laughs) You can almost set your watch by that. Uh, And uh, commit them to faithful men Worthy disciples, not just anybody, uh, who will be able to teach others as well. And so the system of discipleship is a learning system, life to life, about learning how to live life um, with the Word of God. Now the content of the discipleship is a content based on uh, all that Jesus taught. And Jesus taught the Torah, and Jesus taught the gospel and uh, of the kingdom, and he taught his disciples how to pray. He taught them how to minister. He taught them all aspects of this discipleship system. So at the Great Commission, he is not saying to them, go get people saved. He is not saying to them, get them to say the sinner's prayer. He is not saying to them, water down the gospel into four lines and try to get it marketed. He's saying to them, everything that I have taught you, you will now teach others so that they become disciples. They are signed in identification with me through baptism and you will teach them to observe, to do, to practice everything that I have taught you. That's quite a a process. Now this system of discipleship found in the scriptures that includes what Moses taught and what Jesus taught in the context of both correcting and fixing some that had been taught uh, prior to him coming uh, was was passed on in two ways. We're going to look at some texts about that. I could go on forever on these. These are a sample of verses that there's just a myriad of them throughout the scriptures. The first one is the parental responsibility. Parents are responsible, particularly fathers, to make sure that their children are raised in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll look at... uh, In, in effect, a Older Testament passage and then a Newer Testament passage. Deuteronomy 6, at the Shema, and you all are familiar with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I command you this day, verse 6, shall be on your heart. You, that means you shall completely internalize them. You will know them and you will do them. And you shall teach them diligently, not occasionally, diligently, to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, 
when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, this, these scriptures, these commandments, my, my ways, you will know them thoroughly and you will teach them diligently to your children. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, we have the passage that's tied into what we did earlier with the dedication of a child. You will, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There's a reason God says that. Because if a father in trying to instruct is overbearing, the children will either rebel or give up. And you are not to have them rebel or give up. You are to entice them into learning the fear of the Lord and the ways of the Lord so that they will walk in that way. It's not get them to say the sinner's prayer, check it off, and then go on. It's to bring them into this discipleship system so that they in turn will teach their children in, in years to come. The third generation principle that is talked about. This is also done in the congregation in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, and there are plenty of passages in the Older Testament, but this is the one that we read earlier and I simply want you to see that uh, because sometimes people will say to me, well, that's, that's, the Jews have to do that, but the Christians uh, don't do that. So let's listen to the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, who is writing uh, to his disciple. Uh, he actually writes similar things to uh, Timothy, his Jewish disciple, and Titus, his Gentile disciple. And he says, the things which you have seen and heard in me, these commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others. And so we have both the family, home, discipleship of parent to child, with fathers being primarily responsible. And then we have the congregational discipleship, where those who are the elders, if you will, there's a reason that historically uh, pastors began to be called father, uh, not in the sense that Jesus condemned, but almost in the spiritual uh, sense, the way Paul says of Timothy, you are my son in the faith. Uh, I, I, I am your father in the faith. That, that idea of being parental in the sense of training them up in the ways of the Lord is supposed to be done, and it's supposed to be done with faithful, faithful men. This discipleship system is done. So it is taught by those who know the system to those who are learning the system. Now you know what happens if you have a parent who doesn't know anything who tries to raise a child. Imagine a pastor who doesn't know anything trying to raise a congregation. In large part because he has a sense of calling and he knows a couple of verses. And he's watched other people do it. We have created generations now of pastors. It's not all their fault. We have created this business model, uh, marketing model, instead of a discipleship model. And it is beginning to show in the wear and tear on the disciples of the Lord. So, you disciple another one because you know the system. And you bring them into... Uh, dedication as a child or baptism as a convert and then you 
train them in the ways of the Lord until they're able to teach others as well. When you're able to teach another, you've got it. Okay? So, to disciple another person is to guide them in doing all that Jesus taught. And he taught a full system of a way of life based on the Torah and the prophets in light of the emerging kingdom restoration which was to come. And a person is a disciple if and only if they are engaged in the learning of all of this and the passing it on to their peer disciples and to their children and converts. So it's important to know whether you really are a disciple or not. A disciple is always learning. A disciple is always reinforcing with their immediate generation. And they are always teaching the generation to come behind them. So they are learning from those who have walked before them. They are understanding and reinforcing those who are in the generation that they are in. And they are instructing the generation that is coming up. That's discipleship. That's the Great Commission. That's what we've been called to. And that is why we call ourselves the Disciple Center. Now what about evangelism? Evangelism, the Greek word euangelion, is a word that means good news or glad tidings. Our word gospel is also an anglicized word of this. And it means to proclaim the good news or the gospel. And that good news is expressed in both a general sense and in a specific sense. I'm going to start with the general one because that's the one that Christians know the least. The specific one, we know the best. But the general one, the ring upon which that diamond sets, we often don't know. And it is important that we have the full gospel in the biblical sense uh, in that, in that way. So I want you to turn with me to First Chronicles. We're going to do a quick uh, a Bible drill here. First Chronicles chapter 16. And we're going to look at verses 23 to 29. Now these verses are actually drawn from a psalm. We can find this in the psalms as well. But I want you to see it in the context. The psalms are a hymnal that's used for the tabernacle and temple worship. And so, this gives it to us in context. And, and in verse 23 it says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the gospel, or the good tidings, of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. Tell His wonderful deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, people of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Now, the idea here is that the gospel, the good news is that God is a creator and wonderful. You should come and see Him. You should 
Know that the Lord has done wonderful things. And whenever we tell of the Lord, and we tell of the wonderful things He's done, we are preaching the good news. The good word about God. And that is the context upon which the specifics of the gospel will be seen. Second, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I have called Isaiah the gospel of the Older Testament uh, because this is where the word good news begins to be used in the way that it will be found in the gospel writings. Most of the time they're using it, they're quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 11. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert uh, in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know what he's talking about. What we call the second coming. When the mountains will be made straight. And the every, people will be resurrected. And all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. A voice calls out. What shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. And the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. And it fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get to a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Who's the bearer of the gospel? Zion. Jerusalem. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he gathers the lambs and carries them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing lambs. Now, if you read this, it's all about the coming of the Messiah, but it focuses not on his birth in Bethlehem, but on his reign in the restoration of the kingdom. The good news is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus preached. He didn't preach four spiritual laws. Four spiritual laws are included there. But there's a much broader uh, text. Isaiah 52. And if you know the New Testament writings, your, your brain's just firing all these passages, even in the book of Revelation. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Right? You, you just go, wow, that's, where did they get that? They got it from Isaiah. Isaiah 52. Verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings the gospel and announces peace. Bringing the good news of happiness. Announcing salvation. And says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, watchmen, lift up your voices. Shout joyfully together. They will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. 
Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Okay? We have turned it into, am I saved? Are you saved? Instead of the Lord is going to restore the whole creation. And He's going to manifest His glory, not only in the creation, but in those of us who have called upon His name. It's not about me being saved. It's about us and the creation being saved. The salvation of the Lord. The Yeshua. That's His name. The Jesus of the Lord. The salvation of the Lord will be the salvation of the entire creation. Now one more. Isaiah 61. Verses 1 to 7. And you'll know this passage because it's found in the Gospels when... Jesus is reading the Haftorah in the synagogue. They read the Torah, and they brought out the prophets. They rolled out the scroll of Isaiah. The Haftorah reading for that day was Isaiah 61. And Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. That is, those who mourn will rejoice and those who have rejoiced will mourn, as Jesus said in His sermon uh, on the mount and in the plain. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of, instead of a, a weak spirit. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And they will build the ancient ruins, and they will raise up the former devastations and repair the ruined cities. talking about the Holy Land. It's talking about Israel being restored to the glory that God promised. All of that is tied into this. It's not about me accepting Jesus going off to heaven. It's about accepting the way of the Lord, awaiting the kingdom to come when He will manifest all His glory in this creation, in this earth, at the second coming and the resurrection. We have watered this message down. Now what about the specifics of the gospel? Well, what about Jesus? I'll get to Him. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. The scripture says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now what is, God, what is Jesus doing? He comes to Israel and he says, there's good news. The kingdom is about to be restored. Well, what's going to happen in the kingdom? What does Isaiah say? The blind will see. The lame will walk. The deaf will hear. So what does Jesus do? He raises the dead. He heals the blind. He heals the deaf. He heals the lame. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready for it. 
Turn from the way of the world and follow me in kingdom things as I get ready to usher it in. Be a steward of this good news. The gospel of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1. I'm going to use Mark because Mark gets so little use. Mark 1.1 1, 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, right? I'm not making this up. The connection between Isaiah and the ministry of Jesus cannot be understated or overstated, actually. It's often understated. In fact, if you don't know Isaiah, you're going to misinterpret the Gospels when you read them. You don't read the Gospels to understand Isaiah. You read Isaiah to understand the Gospels. We have that hermeneutic backwards. God set the pattern and the context that He could place the diamond upon it. And we picked up the diamond and tried to look at the other thing and it's not working. Luke chapter 3. Verse 18. This is where Jesus is reading from Isaiah when he is there. And he closes the book in verse 20 and says, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, which is where they teach. We're doing it wrong. You should be standing. I should be sitting. Okay. And he, would, he sat down. They're waiting for him to explain this passage. And he says... Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. The one who Isaiah talked about is sitting right in front of you. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around, get away from the world, follow the kingdom, because I'm going to establish it. One last passage, one that you're very familiar with. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is going to try to um, give the, the apex of this notion. And he will do it in his incredible chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the good news that I preach to you, by which you received, in which you, are, you stand, which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. It's possible to believe in vain. Well, I believe in Jesus. I said the magic words. Many shall say to me that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this great stuff? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. You who work lawlessness. You didn't do my commandments. You did the commandments of men who said, do this in my name. I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice that, according to the Scriptures. He's not talking about the Gospels. They haven't been written. What Scriptures is He talking about? He's talking about Isaiah 53. He's talking about the Torah. It says a prophet will rise and you will listen to him. He is talking about the Tanakh, the Older Testament. 
they testify of his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you look at him in context, he's going to remove the sin of Jacob. He's going to establish again the kingdom of David. And the Gentiles are going to flow to him. I think we have. We just don't know where we're flowing to. We think we're flowing to heaven somewhere. And we're flowing back to Jerusalem and the promised land. And we'll sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Jesus said, teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. This is why I did this series on the teachings of the Master. Too many people know Paul's writings, but they don't know the context of Paul's writings because they don't know the teachings of the Master. So to evangelize then is to tell the good news found in Jesus that the kingdom of God is near and that because Jesus came from God, He died and was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, not the Gospels, though the Gospels tell that He did it. The sins of Jacob, Israel, And all of the whole human race from Adam can enter into the restored kingdom promised to Abraham. And all that God promised through the prophets will be accomplished through him. And the salvation of the Lord will come upon those who have repented and called on his name. Who have turned from the ways of death to walk in the ways of life in the disciples. God said to Israel... I have set before you my commandments. I have set before you life and death. You will choose life. Okay. Now, can you be saved by keeping these? No. Good thing. But it was never intended to save us. Abraham was saved because he trusted God. And that gave him a righteousness of salvation. Then God gave him a, a, an obedience plan. The covenant of circumcision. Moses and Israel believed God. God gave them salvation, delivering them by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then he gave them his contract and said, now here's how you'll live with me and I'll bless you for it. And the church came along and said, we want that salvation by faith. And we created a layaway Christianity. Just waiting for the rapture. No, we're supposed to grow in grace and in knowledge. We're supposed to walk in the ways that he taught us. Not because they'll save us. And you know, that's always a problem. Somebody will always say, well, I don't follow those things because I don't want someone to think I'm earning my salvation. Now, just about everybody I've ever met, and certainly everybody who knows me, I could obey God's commandments twice what I do now, and I would be in no danger of earning my salvation. Right? That's not the issue. That's just a lazy person's way of saying, I just want to believe and go my way. No, you believe and go his way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you come to the Father through him, and he brings you to the Father, and the Father's commandments are done. Keep my commandments as I have kept my Father's commandments. So evangelism is... To proclaim good news. And the focus of that good news is to believers first, not unbelievers. In other words, it's not about conversion. So I want to tell you who the gospel comes to. The gospel comes first to those who have been waiting for it. I don't have time to do this real 
uh, read all of these, but I'm going to tell you where they are. In Luke chapter 2, and you know this story, Jesus is brought into the temple to be dedicated. And there's an old guy there named Simeon. And the scripture says of Simeon that he was longing for the kingdom to come. And God had told him, you know, it's going to be a long time, Simeon, but I'll tell you what, I'll let you see the Messiah when he comes. And so Simeon goes, takes that baby and he says, Lord, let me now depart. I can pass away in peace because I know the resurrection is certain and I know the kingdom is certain and all that you promise will be there. Let now thy servant depart. He didn't need to convert. He just needed to see what he'd been waiting for. Secondly, it is told to those who have wandered from God. In Luke chapter 3, John is preaching the good news to those who aren't obeying. They've gotten tired and they're now living their own way. And they come to him and he says, the axe is at the tree. There's a judgment coming and salvation coming. You need to get back on the track. And they said, what do we do? And he says, do what you're supposed to do. Don't take more than your wages. Don't mistreat people. If you have two coats, give them to another. Those are the commandments. They show the manifestation that you've joined back on the road. They don't save you. They manifest that you are. And then it is told to those who have no knowledge of God. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, I want to preach this good news to those who have never heard it. And Paul is really the only missionary of the New Testament. The rest of them don't go very far. But Paul goes because he wants this message to the Gentiles to go beyond the ones who are waiting for it and the ones who have gotten lax in their waiting for it. So we have confused uh, evangelism with uh, proclaiming, instead of proclaiming the, the good news, with proselytizing. I want to talk about that as I get to the end. I just have a, I got to do this quick. So let me, let me do this part really quick. I'd like to do a whole message on that. There are two ways to become a disciple. Two ways to become a disciple. One is you can be born a disciple. And the other is you can convert. Being born a disciple is a birth disciple is one who is born into a Jewish or Christian household. It's not, not a matter of having Jewish or Christian parents. It's a matter of those parents dedicating you and raising you in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. And Judaism and Christianity historically have seen an advantage to those born into that Christian household who are then instructed in the ways of the Lord. And then what happens is they are dedicated to God, they are instructed in the ways of God, and then they retain or confirm that dedication at confirmation. So in Judaism, a child is, if it's a boy, he's circumcised, he's named in the home, then he's dedicated at the temple or the synagogue. He's instructed in the commandments of the Lord. And around 12 or 13, he becomes bar mitzvah. Or a girl becomes bat mitzvah. As they say, I have walked in my parents' faith. I now accept that faith. Christianity, the same thing. Child was either christened or named or dedicated. 
And then they were instructed or catechized. And when they reached around 12 or 13, they said, this is now my faith. And they were baptized and confirmed and moved on in that way. You can be born into this system. Now, they can walk away. They can walk away. So we must diligently teach this to our children. We have turned it into child evangelism where we keep trying to get them to say the sinner's prayer when they're kids and we immunize them to the gospel because it's made childlike and not made serious. Second type are convert disciples. These are adults who have come from outside the faith. Person who has no direct knowledge of the way of life and and no commitment to the ways of the Lord. They're confronted with the possibility of entering the faith because they see it in authentic disciples or they hear the good news proclaimed. But converts are not easily brought into a congregation. And the reason for that is a person may say they're a convert and may not be. This is the parable of the sower, and I don't have time to talk about it. But there are those who don't catch the word at all, right? We get that. But then there are those who say, Wow, I want to be a believer. And Jesus says what begins to happen is uh, the cares of this life and having having the world, they just follow the world and it chokes the word and they they don't continue. And others are persecuted and suffer and they say, I don't want to suffer. I'm not going to put up with suffering. And they fall away. And then there are those who persevere because they are fully discipled in the system and they come to fruitfulness. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But I fear that we have done what happened among some of the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. And so I want you to look at one verse. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. In the last century, Christianity has almost dropped discipleship, made it a option, and they have moved to this kind of make a decision for Jesus' um, salvation. And Jesus warned, because at the time of Jesus, Judaism was doing this. It was quick and easy. Just say you'll accept the Lord and His covenant. You don't really have to do it. Just do it on the outside. Just do it when you're seen. And so Jesus says this of them, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now as he talks about this, he, he gives several woes. So I want you to see the context of the verse that is uh, the most important one. And now my brain has lost it. Is it 15? That's it. Yeah, 15. In the context of all these woes. And the woes is about hypocrisy. It's about the appearance of lordship. The appearance of faith. The appearance of a profession. Just say, just say the words... So he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel on sea and land. You're missionaries. You, to make one convert. 
And when he becomes one, you make him twice the child of hell, Gehenna, that you are. You're on your way to hell and you're taking him with you. Because he believes you're following the ways of the master and you're not. You're following the crowd who all have their Jesus signs and their Jesus t-shirts and their what would Jesus do things and you've got the external trappings of it and you have not from the heart followed the one who is the Messiah. Pretty rough stuff. Now there's a third kind of disciple and I'm going to have to stop. And that is a remedial disciple. We have raised a generation who have been given the quick and easy believism and no discipleship. And they're genuine believers, but they're clueless. And they need to be instructed. So our focus on discipleship is for the sake of your children. And we have a boatload of them. And more coming by twos. (laughs) Something Noahic about that, right? And we also have a primary ministry to the remedial disciples who need to be caught up and fixed. And so we lessen the priority of new converts. And I'll tell you why. When you guys announce that you're going to have a child, I am thrilled. Because I believe that that child has a chance to be raised in this faith. But when someone else who doesn't follow the faith tells me they're going to have a child, I'm, I'm weary and worried for that child. So if a family gave birth every year but never raised their children, you would not call them good parents. If churches give spiritual birth and do not raise those children, they cannot be called a good church. They are abusing the children of God. And many of them getting rich in the process. There's a reason we do what we do. For the sake of your children. For the sake of those who have been harmed by this quick believism. And for those who will come to faith when they see an authentic expression. Let's pray.